You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hello and welcome to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. I'm Jeff Ranke, joined as always by Anna Wells. And filling in for David Manti is longtime contributor, short notice co-host, Andy Zoll. Andy, thanks for stepping in for David again today. We're the editors of Manufacturing.net, Industrial Equipment News, and a couple of other brands here at Industrial Media. We've been doing this for over a decade, so we feel like we know what we're talking about. Every year we look at the five, every year, every week, we look at the five biggest stories on our sites, talk about them and the implications they can have on the industry moving forward. Before we get going, we're just gonna ask that you make sure to like, subscribe, or share the podcast. You can also help us out by leaving a review on whatever platform that you'd like to use. And if you have any feedback for us, you can feel free to email the podcast at Andy, Anna, or Jeff at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. One other piece of housekeeping before we get going. For those of you who are worried about it, we did get Anna one of those Today in Manufacturing podcast t-shirts. And if you'd like to be as cool as her, be one of the first 10 people to email us with what you like, don't like, or like us to cover within the podcast, and we'll be happy to get one of those out to you. Before we get going, Andy, thanks for stepping in for David. How are we doing today? Uh, We're great. It's uh, good to be back. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Anna, how good does that t-shirt feel? I love it. And for the audio-only listeners right now, I just want you to know that it's very soft. It's a nice shade of blue. If you're interested in a t-shirt giveaway, you can email us and we'll see what we can do. Awesome. Very cool. All right, let's jump in. I think to start things out, we're going to talk about a little boutique automotive manufacturer. I don't know if you guys are familiar. They've got a, um, they're trying to do this electric vehicle thing. And they've also got a very subdued owner founder of the company. He's kind of social media shy, but we'll get into a little bit here as we talk about the Cybertruck specs disappearing off of Tesla's websites. Um, late in 2019, Elon Musk, have you guys, are you familiar? Elon Musk, we'll get into it a little bit. He unveiled an electric truck that some described as a large metallic trapezoid. Musk called it the Cybertruck. The unveiling, including the now infamous demo where he tried to offer an illustration of the brake-proof windows, in which case they had an engineer throw a large metal ball at the glass and it proceeded to shatter on stage as Elon Musk was describing it as bulletproof. Well, They got past that. Fast forward to last month, and Musk confirmed that production goals for the pickup needed to be modified. And it won't actually go into production until late 2022, volume ramping up the following year. Since then, and as first reported by Electric last week, Tesla has removed all Cybertruck configuration information, pricing details, and specifications from its site. All that's left is a statement telling visitors that they can configure their order next year. Also, previously, three versions of the truck were available for pre-order, including details and add-ons like self-driving features. But now the only option is to place a refundable $100 deposit on a new Cybertruck. As you could probably guess, this removal of information has resulted in a ton of speculation that a lot of things have probably changed about the Cybertruck. Some are even suggesting that the information cleanse could mean that the Cybertruck isn't going to be ready for quite a while. Anna, we haven't talked about Tesla forever, so we finally get back to talking about these guys. What was your take on some of these uh, specs disappearing from the Tesla website? Well, it was interesting, and of course, people love to speculate, and since... uh Elon Musk got rid of Tesla's communications department. Tesla does not respond to the speculation in any measured way outside of his Twitter account, really. So um, (laughs) 
So, you know, then the, the stuff can just go rampant. I don't know. Since the story broke, um, a Tesla enthusiast has posted a video on YouTube showing what's believed to be an updated version of the Cybertruck, like on a test course, basically. So if you look at the footage, it was reportedly taken at this small municipal airport near Fremont. So that checks out that it could yeah. be an actual Tesla um, rather than like a replica. But um, I read an article on The Drive, which detailed what it believed to be windshield wipers visible. And it's hard to see, but um, uh, side mirrors and rear wheel, rear wheel steering, which is what Tesla said this would have. Sure. So I think that all points to potentially this is the Cybertruck. Um, so I don't know. To me, that may be an indicator that this is moving forward. I don't think that them pulling down those specs um, or con configuration options and then pricing details necessarily means that the Cybertruck is dead. Um, it a lot of drama around that potential. Yeah. But, um, you know, as we know, there's a lot of supply chain stuff going on. Everyone's raising their prices. So I wouldn't be surprised if they were sure. just making some changes there. But, you know, look, Tesla is notoriously cagey. Um, Elon Musk seems to get like almost perverse pleasure out of being vague. <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps he doesn't care what people think, um, especially considering that the Cybertruck, I think, maybe has one of the strongest brands for any yet to be produced yeah. in development vehicle that I've ever seen. So maybe he just, you know, he's letting it simmer. I mean, Tesla just announced their most profitable quarter ever, despite all of the supply chain challenges that are impacting automakers. Um, and I think, like, meanwhile, the drive is saying that they're pretty excited about the new footage and they think this is like real solid evidence that Tesla's moving forward and it's they said it's really like the first evidence outside of a Musk tweet that like the cyber truck is actually coming. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like maybe this got people riled up because they got nervous because it has like a million pre-orders, right? Um yeah. which is insane. Yeah. But I don't I don't think that people need to be worried that the cyber truck is necessarily not going to happen. I think it is going to happen. Cool. Does the I didn't get a chance to see the footage. Does it still look like a large metallic trapezoid? It does. And some people <laughs> said that they thought that it, the angles were a little bit more pronounced, which that was necessary. What? Like it's already pointy? like the most pointy vehicle I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah, it looks the same. Interesting. Andy, what's your take? Um, I uh, I guess I would agree that uh, this doesn't mean they're they're killing the uh, the model entirely because that would be a bad look. But um, I would say it doesn't bode well for it getting out on time, even by these timelines that people are speculating about. Mm -hmm. So, um, and one thing I thought that might be interesting about that was that you know it's not like when Tesla was first starting out and they were the only game in town trying to come out with these electric sedans. A lot of people are working on these electric pickups and trying to get control of that market now. Maybe they're not worried about that because this is a rather unusual uh, body style, and uh, <laughs> they're not. So maybe they're not concerned about what Ford's doing with the F one fifty Lightning or what Rivian is doing. But um, those two uh, trucks are going to be out before the Cybertruck now, even by this uh, ambitious, maybe mm -hmm. too ambitious timetable that they're looking at. So we'll Good have point. to see how that affects them, if at all. Well, and they had some issues with the when they rolled out the Model Three. They had mm -hmm. a bunch of pre-orders. They couldn't get them out on time. They had some definite issues there. Yeah. Obviously, the automotive supply chain has gotten maybe just a little more complicated in the last 18 months or so. Mm -hmm. So, Anna, do you think maybe they're just – Musk is actually slowing things down a little bit, mm -hmm. trying to be, as you described, less cagey? Yeah, maybe. He's just looking at it in a very practical way. And, and you know, they're a public company, so – 
how many times can you go through this, like taking people's money and then making them wait for a really, really long time yeah. outside of the original timeline that you, you've placed. So you're right. I mean, it could be that, that they're just looking at this in a very practical way and saying, this is not going to happen. We know with our supply chain constraints that we got to be putting out the vehicles that we're currently selling that are already in production. Right. Andy, what do you think of the Cybertruck just from the aesthetics of it? Um, well, I, uh, <laughs> it seems like you're, it can be your honest, style. Yeah, yeah. I will say it doesn't look very uh, practical to me, but it's my position that not very many, uh, full-size pickups are that practical to begin with. So I'm not sure I'm the right guy to ask about this sort of thing. <laughs> I my, my ideal is the, uh, the mid nineties Ford Ranger. So that's, uh, uh that's okay. where I Stick land on the, yeah. uh, yeah. that's where I land on the truck continuum. It'll be interesting, you know, Anna, you mentioned how they just had their most profitable quarter. One of the things they did mention in that call, though, on the financial stuff was some of the supply chain issues they're anticipating. Mm -hmm. We're going to get into that a little bit when we talk more about EVs later on, but um, Tesla's not immune to that. If no. they do want to keep some of this momentum going, it might make sense to focus on some of their core products right now that are moving as opposed to ramping up too much for something that's still in development. So totally, yeah. kind of a um, work in progress, story in progress there. Moving on. Our next story talks about some ship fires. Now, it's kind of interesting because we're talking about a Navy, the Navy probing some major failures in a fire that destroyed a ship. More specifically, we're talking about the USS Bonham J Richard. Um, the Navy just issued a report concluding that there were sweeping failures by commanders, crew members, and others that fueled the July 2020 fire that destroyed the ship, calling the five-day blaze in San Diego preventable and unacceptable. The 400-page report details lapses in training, coordination, communication, fire preparedness, equipment maintenance, and overall command and control. I'm not sure they left anything out there. Um, it slammed commanders of the amphibious assault ship for poor oversight and said the main firefighting foam system wasn't used because it hadn't been maintained properly and the crew, the crew didn't know how to use it. The ship was in the midst of a two-year, $250 million maintenance and upgrade project at the time of the fire. The report goes on to describe combustible materials scattered and stored improperly. It said maintenance reports were falsified and that 87% of the fire stations on board had equipment problems or had not been inspected. Failure to extinguish or contain the fire led to temperatures exceeding 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. And the Navy has decommissioned, they, the Navy decommissioned the ship in April. And in August, Seaman Apprentice Ryan Mays was charged with aggravated arson. He has denied the fire. Now, Andy, this isn't an industrial plant. This isn't a manufacturing facility, but there's still a lot to take away here in terms of industrial applications towards safety and maintenance. Um, even by the standards of scathing government oversight reports, this one was particularly scathing. This was basically uh, basically told as a complete institutional collapse mm -hmm. in this incident. And the people implicated range, as you mentioned, from admirals all the way down to civilian contractors. So... Um, this is uh, this is a big deal, and um, one thing I would say is that uh, this ship or this fire raged for five days, um, and uh, a lot of sailors uh, went to for for treatment for smoke inhalation and that sort of thing. No one was killed, um, which is uh, a very good thing to come out of this. Well, and remarkable, twelve hundred degree Fahrenheit heat. It was <clears throat> melting. It was literally melting the ship as it burned. Yeah. It's incredible. We'll we'll get into a little bit later on about how um you know these kinds of oversight failures can have much more much more catastrophic consequences. Mm -hmm. But for this one, um they 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 lost a ship worth 
millions, billions of dollars. Yeah. And hundreds of millions. I mean, and they, they ended up just basically scrapping it. I think mm, it still yeah. cost them 20 or $30 million just to scrap it, but it would have been billions yeah. to try to refurbish and, and repair. But aside from that and aside from the scathing report, they get to implement the recommendations included in the report, which is um, more training, um, especially for ships that are not on the water. They're in for maintenance and things kind of went haywire that sort of way. But also, more importantly, uh, they implemented random inspections. And they, the Navy has said that that's already been implemented and they're seeing some success with it. So that's one good thing to come out of this. Otherwise, a uh, pretty horrifying story. And I was really surprised. It's one thing for there to be a breakdown mm -hmm. in terms of safety procedures, but they seemed to implement that there was people didn't even understand what the procedures were or how to react. And command and control basically just said, yeah, it's what it is. Yeah, the people didn't know what to do at all. Um, you know, it was really horrifying. As you mentioned, going through the report details, how they identified lapses in training, coordination, communication, fire preparedness, equipment maintenance, overall command and control, yeah. which is a big one. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. everything, right? Um, add into the mix that one of the crew members is accused of setting the fire. And this is just a colossal failure overall. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, this is a Navy ship. It's not a manufacturing plant, but I think you could easily see how, you know, a large operation with a lot of people involved, um, combustible chemicals are very, yeah. you know, like, this this could easily be the same kind of sizable catastrophe that you would see in a manufacturing plant um, due to poor communication and management. Um, I've been in a lot of factories over the years, as I know you guys have as well. Some of them are clean enough that you could eat off the floor, just like yeah. impeccably organized. And others are not. I mean, and, and this is like with yeah. prep time, knowing that you're coming. Yeah. They know that you're coming and it's still like kind of a hot mess in there. Um, I firmly believe that setting the tone on something like this is top down. If your management permits chaos, chaos will reign. I mean, this place sounds like a brat house out of a movie. The fact that like all of these, I mean, there's all the checks and balances were problematic. So yeah. nothing could have stopped this from happening. That's outrageous. Um, and as you mentioned, it was very costly in the end. Um, the fact that nobody died, I think, is an accident. I mean, that's that was just a yeah. very, very lucky break that that didn't happen. Well, it probably happened because, I mean, th this was at dock. This was when I was at dry dock, okay? So mm -hmm. it was undergoing these maintenance procedures. What if something did happen when they were actually out of maneuvers out in the middle of, of the ocean? Yeah. I mean, this is a, in re relating it to an industrial setting, this is a small community on board these ships. This mm -hmm. isn't a carrier or anything where it's it's thousands of people, but you're still talking about hundreds of sailors that basically almost avoided what could have been something worse because of when it happened. Mm -hmm. um, Andy, you know, a lot of this that the Navy came down so hard on its own people. What's your takeaway there in terms of how does how does a culture get created in all places, a naval vessel like this, where sailors didn't even know to push the button. They literally just had to hit the button mm -hmm. to to release this foam suppressant. It, it just doesn't happen. It was mentioned in the report that um, when when these boats are out at sea, procedures are followed, people know what to do, generally speaking, um, as far as people taking their, their foot off the, off the gas when it's in for maintenance, I suppose some of that's natural, and that's why you have to have such uh, stringent oversight at the top levels to make sure that thing doesn't happen because it's almost human nature to not be as, you know, if you're out in the middle of the ocean, yeah. you know, you better be on your toes. If you're in San Diego, <laughs> it's a different scenario. 
potentially. You know, it's interesting. The Navy actually conducted additional studies. They've had, and this one blew me away, 15 shipyard fires over the last 12 years. The report went on to say that 13 of these occurred during maintenance. So kind of to your point, Andy, mm. that, you know, they let up a little bit once they were sort of off mission, you know, during downtime, if you will. And since 2009, NCIS, which is a real thing, not just a series of TV shows on CBS, has reported there's been over 50 reports or uh, 15 reported or suspected arson cases on ship. Really? That is terrifying. Why in the world of all things would you want to burn down your own boat? That's a tough one. There's some other things I thought were interesting in the report as well. They said in 11 of the 15 fires, there was widespread noncompliance with fundamental practices. We've kind of hammered that to death. Four of the 15 were attributed directly to improper hot work, such as welding or riveting. Mm. Definitely an industrial application there. We've we've seen a ton of those things come up. And again, talking to your point, Anna, there there is too much reliance on formal schools and outside certification and not enough day-to-day training in basic firefighting, incident management, and firefighting in an industrial environment. Mm -hmm. So the Navy's got some issues here. At least they have. There's definitely a level of accountability that one would hope to believe that Hopefully these things can be minimized going forward and fewer of them. Um, not as significant as the the danger that you're putting everybody at worth, but we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer dollars that are basically sinking with these ships when these fires occur. So moving on <laughs> before I get too fired up about <laughs> that one. Our third story talks about as a gun plant downsizes, Nearby manufacturers vie for its workers. This is a really interesting story. Last month, gun manufacturer Smith & Wesson announced plans to relocate its headquarters and shift hundreds of jobs from Massachusetts to Tennessee. Even though the company has been in Springfield for nearly 170 years, it cited pending state legislation that could restrict production of certain types of weapons and ammunition magazines. The gunmaker plans to make the $125 million, 750 job move beginning in 2023 and it's offering assistance to any workers that want to make the move with them. However, local industries caught up in a tight job market that we've talked about a ton are reportedly hoping to pick up some of these workers who might want to remain in the Springfield area. Some of the companies include aerospace manufacturer VSS, Coca-Cola, and Eastman Chemical. They've all taken out advertisements around the facility, basically targeting Smith & Wesson Wesson workers. They may want to stick around. One VSS executive called the Smith & Wesson decision the opportunity of a lifetime. Anna, this is pretty interesting. You've got, we're going to stay, maybe steer away a little bit from the reasons why um, Smith & Wesson is leaving. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they've got all of these workers, highly skilled workers that they can potentially go after, creates a really interesting environment. It is. And it's interesting, too, to me that the shift is said to be taking place in 2023. That's when it's starting. So these other manufacturers are either playing like a long game on this or they're expecting to pick off some of these workers well in advance to that move. Um, I'm curious to see what kind of timeline the workers would be on. Uh, We have many reasons to believe the current labor market where companies are desperate for workers and labor has their pick, basically, um, that, you know, we have reason to believe that that's not sustainable forever. Right. I think we've underestimated societally the role of the pandemic in this still. Um, We've talked a lot about comp, but I know for a fact that there's still a lot of workers that are staying out of the workforce because they're caring for children that are unvaccinated, that they don't want to put them in school or um, 
they don't want to go to work because of COVID fears. Maybe they're immunocompromised or something. I read a recent report that suggested that COVID fears were actually hampering the job prospects of about 17% of unemployed people. That's a lot. Um, yeah. And that same report too, 21% said that they weren't looking for work in earnest because they had a financial cushion. So why am I pointing this out? Um, I think both of these variables are going to diminish over time. I mean, hopefully COVID cases continue to decline. Um, if you have a financial cushion and you're not working, that's not going to last forever. Um, once we get a handle on this, I think it frees up some people who have been out of the workforce for a long time. So I wonder if the Smith & Wesson workforce, who may be multi-generation Smith & Wesson workers, um, that company's been there for 170 years, they might not be so quick to hightail it out of there. I don't know. But yeah. if they don't go now, they might not be in such a high demand by the time this um, move takes place in 2023. So depending on what they do and when, I think it could mean a problem for Smith & Wesson as they try to wind down the plant if some of these workers start to leave now. Um, because yeah. where are they going to replace them? You know, it's a small it's a great point. town. Um, so it could turn into a conflict for them. Um, I think it's sort of a weird, like, kind of chicken game for some of these workers that they want to decide, you know, do I wait it out until this really winds down or do I jump now? I don't know. We'll see what they do. It'd be interesting to watch. Yeah. Andy, what was your take? Um, I So they they made this announcement well in advance, more than a year in advance of the actual move. Um Basically, they said to give their workers a heads up and they're going to provide financial assistance uh, for anyone to move to Tennessee with them. Um, as far as them being poached potentially by these other uh, these other companies, you know, there's no indication of how many positions we're looking at. They're, I would assume they are smaller than this large fa- firearms factory, but still. Um, Smith & Wesson is going to maintain a presence in Massachusetts. They're moving their headquarters and some of their larger weapons production to Tennessee, consolidating some other plants elsewhere in the country. But they're still going to have more than 1,000 workers in Massachusetts. So I think they're losing, if I recall correctly, something like 500 jobs in this move. If you know a few hundred are poached by other manufacturers in the area because they're worried about their job prospects long term and uh, not wanting to move to Tennessee maybe, um, that could be – a problem for Smith and Wesson from just staffing that plant going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also could be um, a way to uh, wind or down downsize that plant a little bit just through attrition without having to lay anybody off. So mm-hmm. that, that could be, this is a good angle for their workers regardless, but that's a particularly good one when you get to cut jobs like this and maybe blunt the impact a little bit. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. So it is, I don't, they weren't clear. It's 750 jobs that are going to be created in Tennessee. I don't know if that's exactly the number, you know, that they're moving or, or whatever the dynamic is. What I think is interesting is you've almost got a free agency, like from using a sports analogy, what could possibly be going on with some of these highly skilled workers. I think it's fantastic. I love the fact that these other manufacturers are being more aggressive and mm-hmm. assertive. They're using some different types of techniques, which we've been talking about skills gap and difficulty finding skilled workers Mm -hmm. forever. And a lot of it is because manufacturing has always done what manufacturing does. They haven't really opened themselves up to taking different routes, different approaches to either finding and then keeping people. I mean, I think this is a perfect opportunity, regardless of how many workers they get away from Smith Mm -hmm. & Wesson. Just the fact that they're exposing themselves to a different approach in terms of going out and trying to get these folks and and bring them in with the billboards and some other things. um, I, I think it's really interesting i also thought about what would it take for you to get to move from connecticut 
to Tennessee. That seems like a really different environment potentially. Springfield's about 150,000 people. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not that different to say where we are here in Madison. Mm -hmm. It's a northern climate, that kind of thing. I was just thinking about this. Like if Tom wanted to move the company to Florida, mm -hmm. would, would you guys relocate? Like what would it take to actually relocate? That just seems like asking, telling these employees like that's available. Mm -hmm. I just wonder how many actually take them Take up advantage of that offer. Yeah, I mean, it's much easier said than done. You're uprooting your kids from their schools. You're potentially from your extended family. Like, it wouldn't work for me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some people, you saw more migration during the pandemic as True. people were working remotely more and started to look at, like, the cost of living changes that they could make and still maintain a lifestyle. Um, but these are on-site workers, so that's different. True. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, you're not going to get that benefit. Yeah. It's a good it's I would be interested to know that as well if people ever study that because you see it a lot. Mm -hmm. They say that they offer transfers to a lot of people, but it's hard when you have to sell a house or you have a family. It's really that's a big ask. Yeah, absolutely. What would it take for you, Andy? Um, Florida, I don't think I could do. It's just a little humid. Um, East Tennessee, this is in East Tennessee, this new uh, Smith & Wesson complex. That's a nice part of the world. So I think I could be talked into that. Um, yeah. My wife is never leaving Wisconsin. I'm never no. getting out of here. <laughs> Not a chance. So the, the point is uh, moot. Correct. The other thing is, do you think there would ever be a point in time where manufacturing employees, these highly skilled folks, these people that are in such demand right now, could have contracts? Like, do you think if you're if you're one of these folks, like, would you say, okay, I want a, a five-year deal? Mm-hmm. This is what I'm going to get paid, but then yeah. we got to talk after this. I know there's a lot of union elements involved. Right. I believe Smith & Wesson is definitely a union camp, but it just that would be a really unique part of it too because the, the labor market is so tight, and it would just be an interesting paradigm shift, I guess, if that could ever come to be. You mentioned about um, manufacturers changing their strategies in regard to this, in regard to maybe the pandemic kind of forcing the issue more than the longer-term shortage of skilled workers. I wonder if... Uh, the skilled workers themselves will understand their leverage a little bit more because of this yeah. and see uh, if that makes an impact going forward. <laughs> We've definitely yeah. seen more strikes. Yes. Interesting. All right, cool. Moving on. I thought this was an interesting one too. We've got an auto supplier that wants to be paid amid production slowdowns. So we all know about the automotive industry and how it's just been hammered by this ongoing shortage of semiconductors. But one automotive supplier is just over it. And to be honest, it just wants to be paid. Novaris is a French manufacturer of plastic parts. Now, they're a pretty big player. They, According to the company, one of their products is currently being used in at least one-third of all vehicles around the world. Pierre Boulet is the company's CEO, and he says upwards of 2,000 orders have been canceled on short notice this year alone, with at least 100 of those orders scrapped with less than 48 hours notice. These cancellations, as you can guess, this equates to tens of millions of dollars that they're losing, and he feels his company should not be forced to bear the brunt of other um, OE's production issues. Belay says that Belay has also noted that some customers had warned Novaris of cancellations and actually paid for some of the excess costs. Others just basically said tough luck and walked away. He indicated that the company would pursue commercial talks rather than legal action, but was very unclear as to how he would make these automakers reimburse them. Some in the industry, and we've talked about this a lot, are speculating that this chip shortage could last well into 2023. Anna, that's probably optimistic, but what do you think of Novaris sort of trying to be more assertive and getting folks to help them out with some of these uh, cancellations stemming from the, the chip shortage? 
I don't know. I don't think it's like easy to go after tier one. It's not without precedent that an automaker has had to kind of prop up a key supplier in order to maintain the flow of goods. Um, what comes to mind, or when I read this, what came to mind initially was a situation a few years back involving Volkswagen and a key supplier of seats and gearbox components called Prevent Group. I don't know if you guys remember, it was like around 2015-ish, I think. But at the time, Prevent um, it was like right in the middle of Dieselgate. So things were like really rocky for VW. Prevent alleged that VW unexpectedly canceled a contract, after which the supplier retaliated by suspending shipments of components for Golfs and Passats that were already in production. So VW quickly resolved the situation and they agreed to compensate Prevent for the, the cancellation. And then they extended their contract by about six years. Gets through the run, uh, uh, I yeah. think. And then... Um, abruptly canceled all their contracts with Prevent Group. And it was like a super big deal for that company. Um, the coverage in Germany at the time like was really heavily speculating that this was retaliation, that VW felt like they were being blackmailed um, and they were <laughs> out for revenge. I know. Interesting. So maybe that's a dramatic interpretation, but you can see where I'm going with this. Like Novaris would be smart, I think, to tread lightly. And they know this, right? And it looks like they're going the route of, of you know, talks instead of legal filings, which I think is is smart. Um, they know probably that playing hardball yeah. would be a tough road to go down. So I don't know how successful it will be. Um, that remains <laughs> to be seen. But it could get, you know, yeah. it could get dicey because, you know, when you're a Volkswagen or a Toyota or a, a General Motors, of course, you have key suppliers, but yeah. You have a lot of leverage. Yeah. So, Andy, how do you think um, GM and Ford and Toyota and all those folks would respond to this French plastics manufacturer basically saying, hey, man, we're not going to put up with it anymore? He uh, he didn't mention any names in the story of who was uh, who mm -hmm. was treating them fairly in his estimation and who was not. So it's hard, hard to speculate. But, um, yeah, to your point, I just uh, I don't know if they would. You know, even though this company has their parts in a sizable chunk of the world's automotive fleet, I mean, that means two thirds are coming from other companies. So they're they're out there um, and they have to compete with those those people and these automakers in those contract talks, which we're not pretty to in this story. They have to they have to weigh that, too. So, um, yeah, it's it's not. Uh, the the CEO isn't mad about the cancellation so much. It sounds like he Timing. empathizes with them mm -hmm. as far as the chip shortage, that sort of thing. He just wants maybe a little more heads up, and it was very, it was almost sort of existential how he was uh, how he was talking <laughs> about it. It's almost like, come on, you know, we live in a we live in this macho, selfish world. Sometimes it's all very yeah. So it's kind of like he got caught in the middle of a rant. And then he's like, well, I, uh, I mean, I mean, we're not going to like sue him or nothing. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we just want him to know we're not happy. Yeah. And I think they know that already. You know, it's, it's interesting. I'm sure there is something within these deals too. their contracts in terms of timing and cancellation. Mm -hmm. It's just things are so weird right now that it's difficult for anybody to live up to it. I think one of the things that I kind of took away and we talked to, we've touched on this a little bit in the past, but when you look at some of the different just the paradigms in terms of production philosophies and strategies, it's all changing. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Novaris was working on some just-in-time and lean manufacturing principles to see when things were coming in, have better visibility in terms of getting raw materials in place, get these orders out the door so they're not sitting on a bunch of stuff. I'm sure this impacts their cash flow oh, God. more than yeah. anything else. So, I mean, as we move forward, it, 
are we going to be starting to write and put together articles on, hey, ease up on your lean manufacturing practices because right. it screws up your supply chain? Buy an extra warehouse because you might be sitting on some inventory. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think, Andy? That was uh, that was the initial lesson when this started coming up. Toyota kind of weathered it better than everybody else. And they said, well, it's, we kind of got rid of some of the, the lean principles that everybody else was doing. So <laughs> that, we taught, that we taught yeah, everyone to do. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, we scrapped our own production system. Yeah, yeah. So I don't. I mean, that only works for so long, and it's been almost a year now. It's so. expensive. I mean, that's why. That too. Yeah. It's, yeah. But it was an expensive year. It's easy to say yeah. now. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a couple of years. So the other part of this, then, did the big guys have a responsibility to help some of these folks out and be more responsible corporate, you know, buddies? <laughs> or is it, I mean, is, are we just in such a weird place that you can almost tolerate some of this behavior from the big guys? It depends on how much they value that supplier, you know? If they're easily replaceable, then who knows? But um, I don't know. You have it's it's also hard to just like mid production switch out, you yeah. know, somebody that you have in place. So uh hopefully they can come to some sort of resolution that works for everybody. <laughs> can we all just get along? Come on. That's what Anna wants. Yeah. You figure be- almost that uh this company had to tell its its automotive customers that they weren't happy and that they didn't get it. So then he had to go to the press like mm-hmm. and maybe yell it a little bit louder. So Yeah. We'll Maybe we'll get see. some names next. I yeah, and that's the next step. All right, we'll see what happens. Our uh, number one story this week on the sites is Toyota building a $1.29 billion U.S. battery plant. Toyota announced plans to build the factory in the U.S. in manufacturing batteries for gas, electric, hybrid, and fully electric vehicles. Although the location wasn't announced, it's speculated that it will probably be built near a current plant in either Missouri, Kentucky, Indiana, Alabama, or Texas. It's expected to employ over 1,700 people and start making batteries in 2025. It's part of a $3.4 billion plan that Toyota has in spending in the U.S. for automotive batteries over the next decade. By 2030, Toyota wants to sell 2 million zero-emission hydrogen and battery electric vehicles globally and at least 1.5 million vehicles in the U.S. that are at least partially electrified. So they're definitely customizing their plans here for the U.S. consumer. Um, Toyota joins Ford and GM in announcing recent large investments in U.S. battery factories. GM is looking at plants in Ohio and Tennessee, while Ford is looking at Tennessee and Kentucky. According to Ted Ogawa, Toyota's North American CEO, the commitment to electrification is about achieving long-term sustainability for the environment, American jobs, and consumers. And he actually wrapped himself in the flag, Rocky, Rocky Balboa style, <laughs> immediately after making those comments. It's about America only. Exactly. Yep. So, Andy, what is this story, which is clearly just about you know, transforming the American auto worker? What, what was your takeaway? Um, well, it shows that uh, Toyota, which, uh, as we've covered before, has uh, been a little bit of a laggard on uh, electrification. Um, it shows how they're now, they've said publicly that, no, we get it now. Electrics are here they're going to be here we need to get on board this is kind of them showing that in a material way uh, like, to the tune still of still some hybrids yeah like- <laughs> yeah that's yeah so you know we've talked at length about this how they they pioneered the hybrid and then got into hydrogen and then pretty much electric said no we're just gonna push hydrogen way 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 to the back burner so now they have to uh play catch up and uh this this is how they're they're going to do it, and um, again they're still facing challenges because it was one of just a handful of automakers this week alone to say, mm-hmm. or yeah. not this week alone, but in recent weeks to say, hey, we're 
also putting up battery plants and electric vehicle assembly factories and all this other stuff. So uh, we'll have to see uh, how quickly they can get up and running. So Anna, are, is Toyota being reactive to legislation that's coming out down the line? Or are they being proactive in really determining what consumers are going to want in the short term? Well, it's <laughs> a great question, Jeff. But um, That's what we do here. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff of the great questions. Um, we don't know what consumers are going to want. I think that's really hard to say at this point. We know that EVs are not selling well now, but there's also not a lot of options out there and they're very expensive so the scale of having mass evs no one has reaped the benefit from a cost standpoint um so that will be interesting to see once there's a flood of these the price goes down there's a lot of options um we might see this ramp up a little bit but um yes i think they're responding to the government requirements 100 percent. that's that's what's driving this Mm -hmm. obviously what i wonder is this is creating a different supply chain though too when you look at electric vehicles, and specifically when they're talking about building batteries. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at the different materials, the lithium, the, um, what's the other one? The big one that is a uh, sort of an issue right now, uh, cobalt. Cobalt, yeah. yeah. So when we look at those, and the U.S. is not the top producer of these types of minerals. There's another one too. What is it? Neo, neodymium. I'm probably butchering that name. But anyway, China <laughs> is is the main source of all of these minerals. Right. So th- mm-hmm. these companies are investing in these huge factories here in the U.S. to produce them, Andy, but they're still going to have to source a lot of these materials from other places. Now, you, we do have some of this here in the U.S. that we can get to, especially in California, but still you're bringing in a lot of all the raw materials to build stuff here. Could we cre- be cr- almost recreating another supply chain issue, sort of what we're dealing with with chips right now? Yeah, we uh, we certainly need one of those, like a, like a hole in the head. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, there's, there was some talk about, um, developing these sorts of mines where they exist here, but those run into all, all the other sorts of issues you come across, uh, when you're trying to build those, these large mining operations in the U S which is environmental, um, and just the disruption to, you know, everything around it. Um, so probably, yeah, you're talking about creating another enormous supply chain, during you know, no, we all hope that yeah. the current supply chain crisis will ease by the time this gets rolling, but you're still going to have to deal with the same kinds of issues and deal with the same kind of disruptions, maybe not to this scale, but as these things happen, you know, it's another thing you have to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to answer that question. I think that's exactly what we're doing is creating the next supply chain problem. And I don't think that it's like an issue that is insurmountable, but mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned the automakers that are announcing battery plants. The one you didn't mention was Stellantis, who um, announced their own battery plant in partnership with LG, like almost on the same day as this Toyota thing. I mean, it was crazy how fast this is all going, right? Um, The industry has already started raising some alarm bells about raw materials, as you said, um, and how that might hamper the ability of the car and battery makers to service demand. For example, this summer, a report on Forbes that I read suggested that the impact that the chip shortage is currently having on the auto market could actually look like small potatoes compared to yeah. future shortages that will impact batteries. And they cited a report from the Center for Automotive Research, and they said that the semiconductor shortage will cut a total of 8.1 million cars from global production between 21 and 23. Well, between 2022 and 2029, 18.7 million 
rechargeable electric cars will be lost because of battery cell shortages. Whoa. So that's, you know, that's basically our our next major supply chain problem in automotive. And building new factories doesn't exactly solve that problem because it doesn't deal with the material chain. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's great that they we have more producers and obviously these automakers want to keep those close at hand. But um, I am guessing the automakers know this, right? I mean, they're not dumb. They know this is happening. So I'm assuming I'm hoping that on the heels of these new battery plant announcements, we're going to see more announcements around innovations relating to materials or maybe battery recyclability. Um, I think that, you know, GM has talked a lot about their internal battery developments. Hopefully we'll see more variety in terms of just, um, you know, instead of just relying on this one material chain that is largely out of our control because it's not domestic to see that we could service these vehicles. Cause I don't think, you know, look at the investments that are going into this is yeah. a lot of money. So I do have concerns about our ability to sort of service this yeah. insane amount of development and production. Cause it's so fast. I mean, so it's, fast. It, it's so mm-hmm. rapid for such a, a huge shift in mentality and the way that we're going to go about building cars and powering cars. Uh, if we're looking in the next decade, the one thing, depending on how you feel about government involvement is a big part of Biden's infrastructure plan does address rare earth element supply chain, mm-hmm. which some of these fall into cobalt and that isn't really considered a rare earth, but still a lot of the materials that we need, in theory, <laughs> are supposed to get some support there from that infrastructure bill. So it will be interesting to see how it plays out. It was also interesting to me to ta- see that Toyota just had to throw in the hybrid thing. Like they couldn't, it's not just all EV cars, they're still holding on to that hybrid electric model as well. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that plays out. Moving forward, time for in case you missed it. Andy, what did what did we miss this week? What do you got for us? Uh, well, we just talked about electric vehicles, so I, you can understand how another electric vehicle story may have slid under the radar because everyone's so focused True. on Toyota, Stellantis, Ford, GM, etc. Um, so Foxconn, the enormous contract manufacturer from Taiwan that makes your iPhones, your other smart devices, what have you, uh, they said they're going to start making cars. <laughs> Um, and they said they want to do it, uh, under the same sort of contract model that, uh, that they do with their phones. Okay. Now, um, <laughs> Dramatic I, uh, I don't know if, uh, no, they say they're going to do this globally, China, Europe, North America. I'm not sure if Western automakers will be real keen to just say here, make our cars for us. That mm-hmm. doesn't sound likely to me. No. Um, but I guess we'll see the main issue. I had is uh, we're in Wisconsin and we've uh, been eyewitness, close eyewitness to Foxconn maybe making some declarations that didn't actually pan <laughs> out. They uh, they were going to build a huge tech complex in the southeast part of the state, $10 billion, 13,000 workers, and that doesn't exist. And it's been, how long has it been? Uh, it's the 2018 20, uh, election, just so a little d- before that. Yeah. So yeah, four years and they're mm-hmm. still... Not doing much in Racine, so they scale, scaled it down to what, like seven hundred million from up from ten billion. 10 billion yeah. yeah. Um, I should mention some of the details. They they have a uh, a Model E sedan developed with an Italian design house uh, that's supposed to launch in twenty twenty three. They say uh, that'll get four hundred seventy miles on a charge, and then a bus called the Model T will get two hundred fifty miles on a charge. So, if they are able to fulfill it the Model T. 
That's what it says They're calling here. They're the Model T, yeah. It's a bus, too. In this <laughs> is like hilarious. Associated oh, Press article. Wow. Hopefully they'll change that. Yeah, they might want to do that. I wonder if the, uh, is that in the public domain now? That trademark? Probably. Right. There you go. Easy money. Yeah. Wow. So. Well, um, I'm glad they're not putting their name on it. Like, who's going to buy a Foxconn car? I mean, at least they're they're, they're sticking to their contract model, yeah. I guess. I think yeah. it's a, I think a positive right, thing. Right now, the first company that's signed on to use their designs is a company called, I think it's Yulon. It's in Taiwan. Um, I think we'll see more Asia representation. I don't, as Andy said, I don't see like the big three (laughs) having a need for this. Although Foxconn is saying like, we are going to build plants close to our customers and build near them. So they're looking at plants and all, you know, they just are talking about buying that Lordstown plant in Michigan. Um, who knows? But again, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> it's Foxconn. Yeah. Who knows? Scary. Yeah. I wonder what the UAW has to say about this, you know, too, because I'm sure they're thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all those plants down, down in the Southeast, those are very, very few of those are union shops. Mm-hmm. Now you've got somebody who's coming in who kind of has that low cost moniker, you know, mm-hmm. attached to them in terms of what they do. Yeah. This would, I don't know. I'm conflicted because I have an iPhone. It's well made. I don't have a problem with that. It's just that name right now. You actually know who Foxconn is. It just, brings up some a lot of negative sentiment so i don't know we'll see anna what did we miss this week okay so um my story is about a scorned ex-worker i know um who allegedly hacked some airplanes at a flight school so a 26 year old florida woman has been accused of hacking into the systems at her former workplace it was called the melbourne flight training school and according to a report published by Vice's motherboard. Uh, Lauren Lide resigned from her position at Melbourne in 2019 after her father, who also worked there, had been fired. Um, Sounds like maybe she had an axe to grind about this. But a few months later, the CEO of the flight school, Derek Fallon, noticed that there were some significant gaps in information in the app that the company used to track its flights. So Vice said that Fallon called the police and explained that the records in the flight app were changed or missing for example, some planes with maintenance issues had been labeled airworthy and others had inspection reminders deleted. Uh, Fallon reportedly stressed to police that some of these planes cleared for flight may not have been safe for the pilots to fly, which is Jeez. pretty terrifying to think about, right? Uh, the police reportedly tracked the IP address um, responsible for the changes back to the Lied household. And then they say that the hacker used administrator access, although Fallon says he doesn't know how the password was obtained. And I'm going to stop on that point <laughs> because if all that's standing between a disgruntled employee and what is basically this very dangerous act of sabotage is one password, then I think we can see the problem. And if the you know if this woman yeah. is found responsible, I'm not trying to like victim blame here exactly, but you know she should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law if if that's you know what happened. But I think maybe it's time to start evaluating a business for what potential danger could result in a hack. And I'm not just talking about flight schools here, but also like, you know, we saw that thing with the public utility where the water was um, tampered with. Uh, There's lots of businesses where tampering could cause like very like catastrophic public consequences. I think maybe we need to start creating like a basic cybersecurity requirement that is like in as intrinsic as what you would expect from like a safety regulator, you know, like, 
because this is a safety regulation um, and small businesses, and this is documented, like they are increasingly being targeted because many of them are oblivious to how exposed they are to being hacked. Yeah. So I don't know. I, it, to me, I know we talk about cybersecurity a lot, but this article really kind of hit home just how easy it can be to sneak in. And, you know, yeah, we think of like hackers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we think of hackers as these like nefarious, like overseas like, you know, somebody right. who's just trying to break in and get money or whatever. But like this stuff happens too. And clearly it's very easy to do or it can be. Um, so who is, I guess, I know like Biden has some initiatives around cybersecurity. That's, I think, very important. Some of these smaller businesses, they need to um, make some changes, I think, around BYOD, um, around, you know, multiple step authentication for stuff like this. Yeah. This, is, this could have been way worse than it was. No one was hurt. So thankfully. Reactions, Andy? I mean, how do you not change that password when somebody leaves the job, particularly when you're dealing with aircraft? Like it just, uh, whatever. I It's mind-blowing. I mean, it really is, especially when you're talking about, this. so this is a training school, correct? Mm -hmm. But still, you're talking about planes, people going up there. When you're talking about maintenance procedures being doctored, first of all, you're right. This woman deserves the book thrown at her. This yeah. is this is not to be too dramatic, but this is almost like attempted murder. It's scary, I mean, it, yeah. When you think about what could have happened here. Um, yeah, and we've we've lectured, we've talked about this a ton. Maybe it is time for an OSHA type regulation to come into effect for a lot of these businesses to make sure they are doing hitting a lot of the low hanging fruit at mm -hmm. least when it comes to cybersecurity. Um, also, solicited or unsolicited plug for a new video series we're doing oh. here at Manufacturing.net called Security Breach, and it talks about cybersecurity for the industrial sector. The host of the show is fantastic. I don't know if you you've seen it. Uh, uh, is it you? is it you? It is me. It I just so happens to be. I was I was not trying to tee you up for that, but you're welcome. Well done. <laughs> um, but yeah, we checked out. We actually the last episode was talking about how October is actually a horrible month for cybersecurity crimes, just because there's this rush of different things with elections, um, even like the weather and some of the natural disasters. Plus, you're gearing up for holidays, so there's all this personal information flying around. Oh wow! People are not looking for it as much. Mm -hmm. So yeah, cybersecurity. I mean. He said, you're, we talk about it a lot, but it just continues to be such a huge mm -hmm. issue for everybody, yeah. uh, including the industrial sector. This seems like it might be a, uh, a bit of a loophole in FAA uh, regulations, too. They might need to look at that as yeah. far as uh, dealing with smaller aircraft and pilot training and that sort of thing. Well, and you could see how maybe this falls through. It shouldn't, but maybe it falls through the gaps a little bit because you're not dealing with the, the focus right now is not so much on privacy and information and stuff. And this mm -hmm. is more, it's a machine, but man, it's, it's an incredibly important and yeah. potentially horrible um, thing that could get through to infecting a piece of equipment. So moving on to brighter news, my, in case you missed it, we're talking, and I think people maybe overlooked this one just because there's a little bit of Boeing fatigue, but a former Boeing pilot was in, that was involved in the max testing was actually indicted. So we've got this former, um, uh, was indicted by a, uh, a federal grand jury on charges of deceiving safety regulars about the 737 MAX jetliner, which, as we all know, was involved in two deadly crashes that ended up killing 346 people. Prosecutors said that Mark A. Faulkner uh, basically lied. Um, he was deceptive. When he was one of the people testing this, he saw some things that were actually out of whack with the, and what is the correct terminology here, just so I can get it right, the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System Flight Controls. And he saw this stuff going out in 2016. 
but basically just kind of hid that information. Um, and he said he didn't tell the FAA because it would have basically added about a million dollars onto the cost of the 737 MAX because of the additional training that would have been required for pilots to understand what was going on mm -hmm. when they saw some of these false readings and how to react to it. Um, he even admitted, and this is another, it's still mind-blowing that people actually put these into public statements or emails, but Faulkner actually wrote that he basically lied to regulators about the egregious and errors that were running rampant within the 737 MAX. So this guy has been arrested. He is looking at possibly up to 100 years in jail. Wow. Um, and it was just kind of mind blowing. Part of you, you don't want to get too like conspiracy theory because it it is a lot to come down on one person for mm -hmm. the scope of all this that went on with the 737 MAX. But the, FFA, the FAA did their homework and they did find this, what this guy was doing or what he didn't do in this case. And it sounds like he is going to be having a lot of time to uh, think about his actions. Mm. So what do you think, Andy? I mean, if, the, if he's, uh, I mean, they have documents here, messages he sent about how he noticed these problems and didn't report them. Um, then if he's convicted of that, that's, you know, he deserves pretty much everything that's coming to him because there is 346 souls riding on that decision. I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but that's what happened directly afterward. But, you know, he didn't do this alone either. Mm -hmm. We've talked at length about the problems in Boeing safety culture that have come up as a result of these two crashes and the problems with the FAA letting these companies do their own safety certifications. And those both rear their head here with this guy in particular. Um, and uh, you just hope that they, you just hope that people realize that the million dollars is chump change compared to what they paid out to the government and to the victims. I mean, and you just have to, you know, it feels easier to go along and get along a lot of the time, but you just, I mean, the costs and benefits are just, they're just not even in the same ballpark and you just need people to like really hammer that moving forward. So, and when we see these types of stories, how do we get past the fact that we're not just making this one individual sort of a scapegoat mm -hmm. so that it can all just go away? This has all been wrapped up. It was this guy's fault. We're done and we can move on. I mean, I think Andy kind of hit it on the head here. There was well-documented a lot of cultural issues within Boeing I know people want a scapegoat um, yeah. and it feels easy to, yeah, to just wrap it up and like we are finished with this, but, um, but I don't think that that's fair. And I also think that for anyone who's looking at this outside in, a lot of people work for companies with dysfunctional cultures. And I think that this is a good testament to the fact that in the end, you could be completely put on an island, out on your own, made to pay for whatever it is that you do, whatever decisions that you make, if they're unethical, it doesn't matter if you have a crappy supervisor who is, you know, difficult or whatever. I mean, you have to pay for, in the end, the decisions that you make. And that's, a, that's what we're seeing, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, we talked about a whistleblower last week. Mm -hmm. This guy made these comments to people within that building at Boeing. There was opportunities for somebody to blow that whistle, yep. and they didn't. Exactly, which is disappointing. It kind of bleeds what you both were talking about in terms of culture and accountability. All right, so shifting gears a little bit, we'll go into our final thoughts. Hopefully, they can be a little bit more uplifting than some of the in case you missed it stories we just talked about there. But Anna, 
Any final thoughts here before we shut her down? Well, I am heading up to uh, the North Woods this weekend, and I'm very excited. For those of you who don't know much about <laughs> Wisconsin, it is kind of separated into two parts. Um, so we live in the southern part of the state, but the North Woods is amazing, and it's also very cold already there. Um, it's going to be like 40-something degrees, but we're just bringing our hats, and we're going to roast some marshmallows and look at the lake. Hodag country. Hodag country. There's about 12 people who know what that means. Yeah. Anyway. If you don't know what the hodag is, please Google it. It's H-O-D-A-G. You are going to thank me. Google image search. Yeah. Absolutely. Andy, any final thoughts? Um, well, we got uh, Halloween coming up, obviously, and that's a, uh, a top-tier holiday in my, des- my estimation. <laughs> nice. Um, uh, I know I get roasted around here for liking things a lot, but Halloween, that's right up there. Um, <laughs> roasted for liking things? That's like the second thing I've heard you like. Yeah. See? <laughs> Halloween is is all right. I mean, I I would never roast you for that. Okay. Other things that you have mentioned that I won't mention on the podcast. Okay. Anyway, my point was that um, I'm, uh, for the first time in two years, supposed to go to a little uh, soiree for Halloween. So um, I know people are supposed to email about the t-shirts, but if they also have any cheap costume ideas, because I'm not the the spirit Halloween pop-up store kind of guy. So if they have any cheap costume ideas, (laughs) all ears. So hit me up. I'm here. Good. Awesome. Yeah, Halloween is fun. And I, you know, we've talked about this for whatever reason growing up. Maybe I just lived in a bubble. Like Halloween was just like, hey, you go trick-or-treating, you all grow that. It's kind of what it is. But it seems like it is a much bigger Mm -hmm. deal. Like my kids, it's a huge deal. They're always going places doing stuff. So yeah, it's cool, man. Mm -hmm. My final thought is one of the things that I've enjoyed as things have opened up a little bit is the ability to go back to the movie theater. It's Mm. just something I love doing. So this weekend, I am looking forward to going seeing the movie Dune. Um, I'm sort of a total sci-fi nerd. Um, have there been any movies that you guys, I know you got, you're in kind of a different spot. You're locked into a certain genre of movie that you could actually go to. But I saw the Paw Patrol movie most recently. <laughs> That's the last movie I saw. What you, Andy? We got to go see that Bond movie. Yeah. We've been meaning to. Good. We have, uh, we've not made it yet. I should put that on my list. Maybe this weekend. Good deal. All right. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Just a final reminder to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. Again, if you have any thoughts, feel free to email Andy. Anna or myself at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line for Anna and for Andy. Thanks for joining us for the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.